Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, my friends. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of having my friend Ruby Woodward on the show today. We're going to be talking about chapters uh, 19 and 20. 19 and 20? Yes, 19 and mm -hmm. 20. So accidents, injuries, poisonings, and external causes. Um, so thanks for being here, Ruby. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. And and uh, you're wearing your external cause code t-shirt today too. I am. Um, so we'll see if you guys can see. We're talking about sucked into a jet engine. You know, that happens more than we would like to. Usually not a person. I hear it happens with, with um, birds more than Very people. Commonly. But, you know, it could in, in this day and age, um, I, I'm not surprised by anything I hear anymore. I, I didn't know that laundry soap was a problem. So, I mean, there you go. Um, today is National Waffle Day and National Peach Pie Day. So I think my husband is going to be thrilled. He might be having peach pie for dinner. He does that from time to time. And, you know, men, they don't put on weight like women do. So he can get away with that. She says salty. <laughs> so, Ruby, how how do you decipher with the seventh characters? How, how do you understand the seventh characters when it comes to injuries that uh, we have to describe? Excellent question. One of the first things that I do is I remove that horrible word that says active treatment. <laughs> um, and when I talk to a provider, I never talk about active treatment because from a provider and a clinician standpoint, they consider themselves to be actively treating a patient the entire time they're treating them until they've discharged them from service. So I look at the A, the active treatment, as I've evaluated the patient, I have determined a diagnosis and I have initiated treatment. That is A. And then once I have done those steps, it, it then becomes the subsequent. And based upon whether I'm dealing with fractures, whether I'm dealing with dislocations, which of those subsequent codes that I use. I think one of the problems that we have with the seventh character is we don't have something that's kind of in between, particularly from a fracture perspective. So we have those patients that have fractures um, that they aren't quite healing yet, but the provider is not documenting that they have a delayed union or a non-union. They might not be quite out there, but our only option really that I see is a D. I don't mm -hmm. see if they're not changing their course of treatment, I don't see that I would revert back to an A. The other one that I personally have trouble with are those patients that we have seen them, we've established them, their diagnosis, we've started to manage them. And maybe a few weeks down the line, the fracture moves. Mm. So they aren't really healing, but nothing happened. The fracture has moved. Am I an A or am I a D from an office perspective? When I take them to surgery, we know that it becomes an A again. And it's actually a question I've had out to coding clinics since January of this year. So um, to find out, what do we do with those types of patients? How do we categorize them? And people in ortho, they, they struggle with this all the time. Because just like you said, that seventh character, the, I, I personally think that the term initial and subsequent is misleading from a coder's perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Because um, 
I always tell the little story about my mom. She fell, she fractured her wrist. We took her to the emergency department. They diagnosed it with an A. They said, but we can't fix it. You have to see the orthopedist. So she goes to her orthopedist who again, concurs that diagnosis, but wants more imaging before making a decision how she's gonna treat it or he's gonna treat it. Mm -hmm. Then it's still an A. And then they come back in and the doc says, well, I feel like it's a surgical case. So I can't do it in the office today and I've got to schedule you. So we're still in A and mom's fracture is over a week out. Mm -hmm. um, and then after the surgery, mom goes into, you know, she wears the cast for six weeks, but then she starts physical therapy because it's healing. So it's subsequent. Even if it's the first day of physical therapy, the fractures healing. We're, we're just making sure that everything's moving again now and bending and mm -hmm. doing what it does. And so uh, I like to tell that story because from, from that perspective, it's, we, we could have a week of A's. We could have six weeks of D's. I mean, it really, the, it's not limited to just one particular encounter from that initial or subsequent, right? That's not correct. Well, the other thing, the other thing that I think people, um, many coders have a misconception of is it's driven by global days and patient comes out of the global period and well now it's none of these and mm, not really right the other thing when we come out of our a and our d i think our our delayed healing our non-union our malunion they're pretty straightforward sort of Mm -hmm. um, where we get into a little bit of a problem there is you have the patient that didn't present initially, very common in patients who have fractures of their scaphoid. Um, so they fall, they have an injury, they think they, quote, sprained their wrist, so they don't go into the doc. And four, six weeks later, the wrist still hurts, so they finally present. X-rays are taken, and they have a fracture of their, their navicula. At this point mm -hmm. in time, the provider is probably going to say they have a delayed union or a non-union, but they've never been seen for the problem before. And I had that in my foot once, Ruby. Did I you? I had that happen with the navicular bone in the foot. That's really yeah. unusual. Yeah. Wow. Really I, I had gone to urgent care and urgent care said it was a sprain. It was still symptomatic, still symptomatic, still symptomatic. Finally got to orthopedist who did advanced imaging. And they were like, yeah, you have a non-union fracture. Wow. Yeah. And so if you don't pay attention to how that seventh character reads, your gut instinct is I have a non-union. So I'm going to code it with my non-union seventh character. But if you read it, that is subsequent. Right. So that very first visit becomes an A, which really distorts the problem for the patient. Absolutely. And then you go to non-union and coding clinic says, and then throughout the rest of the course of the treatment, you continue with non-union. So you're never really able to visually show in your coding that this is now healing because I'm saying forever and ever, they now have a non-union. Have you, that's what have funny. you experienced with that, Christine? Well, personally, that's what the way that it's always been documented as, as a non-union because the, it just never, never healed again. It never went back. Um, it's thank God it's not symptomatic anymore. I don't notice it. It doesn't bother me. And unless of course, as I get a little bit older and I'm starting to realize that, um, 
any 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 bone that you have abused over the course of time has a tendency to come back and voice its opinion in later in life in the form of arthritis. Mm -hmm. So fingers crossed, I still have a few more years before that ugly thing rears his head. But um, every time that I did have to get treatment for it, it stayed as that non-union. So that's what I've, I'm personally seeing. Yeah. And when they, in a, in a risk standpoint, they very commonly will take the patient in, they might treat them still in a cast for a while, but mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for them to go to surgery and have a bone grafting um, for that non-union. But they continue to stick with that non-union diagnosis, despite the fact that they are now healing that fracture. Yeah. The other thing that I've been seeing is um, a not strong understanding of that seventh character S, our sequela. Uh -huh. Exactly. Um, more commonly, probably in our T codes than in our S codes, but in both of them, with the understanding that my sequela can never be the first listed diagnosis right. code. Um, and I have to have, what is that sequela that I have? What is the problem that exists? And that problem is then, is it related? Do my, right. does my physician, my provider indicate that it's related? And I always say that it's, when you look at the sequela, it's a new problem that is related to an old problem. So you would code it that way. What is the new problem? And then what, what is it related to? You know, and again, documentation guides us to that code sequencing. It tells us it's arthritis from the non-union that Christine got many years ago, um, but it tells that story. And we see that in documentation. So like you said, it's, it is, it's difficult sometimes for people to understand that that S can't ever be primary. I think that where we get into where we struggle even more is when we get into the T codes that are complications. Mm -hmm. So we already see that as a new problem. And so our gut instinct is we're going to use that T code with an S because that T code is a complication that is a sequela of. Um, and trying to we have to get ourselves to understand. And I love the way you stated it. it this is due to this. So what is my current problem and what was my origination problem? I liked what, how, you, how you related that. Well, because I want them to treat the arthritis that's symptomatic today. And I Correct. don't want them to focus on how it happened because it, that could be embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I honestly think, I think back to all the injuries that I've had and I don't want to have to rehash that with my doctor. I mean, yes, let's, let's address it that that's probably what happened. Um, but let's focus on the arthritis that is present today. <laughs> Love it. One of the other things that I see a lot, especially with, with new coders, is the, the confusion on those uh, superficial injuries mm. where we have a fracture or we have a, a wound. And of course, that wound is red. It's inflamed. Um Maybe there's bruising that happens a lot if there's an injury there. And, and I think when I talk to these students, I, I have to ask, are we treating them from that perspective? Road rash. Oh, it's awful. But do we treat road rash? No, we feel sorry. We clean it up and we tell them don't get it dirty and it kind of heals. The, the fracture is more important today. The wound that needs to be repaired is more important today. 
the bruise is going to go away. It's normal unless, of course, unless the documentation says that there's something more that hematoma needs to be drained or it needs to, right? But right. superficial things, that's not the focus today. We've got bigger fish to fry. Good. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree. I tend to tend to see that same thing. I like your concept of looking at what is really the problem that we're looking at. And is that other problem that, yes, they say they have, are we doing anything to it? And is it maybe really a result of that first problem that they had? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see that a lot too. Another thing that I think, um, that gets confused are burns. I think people don't remember that we have a difference between a thermal burn or a chemical burn. And I think that's really important that, that people understand. And the guidelines actually give us that distinction when it comes to burns. There's some examples in there of burns and not a sunburn. Uh, I live in South Florida, Ruby. So we we typically see in our urgent care centers and even in our emergency departments um, when people come from the north and they think it's wonderful to go spend a day at the beach um, and our sun can be absolutely brutal and i've seen them in the hospital because you've traumatized the skin but that's a sunburn and, and there's a specific guidance in there that says sunburn doesn't count Right. Which is kind of unfortunate. If you think about some of those, my husband was um, like that. My husband was um, had a little red in his hair, but he's, his skin was very fair. Um, mm -hmm. He was very, very sun sensitive. It did not take him long. Um, I used to tease him when we would go to Panama City Beach and he would have his shorts on. I'd make him lay down in the sand and say, let's see who's whiter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. But he would get sun poisoning with yeah. very little exposure to the sun. Um, and so I think it's a little unfortunate for us to not be able to look at that in, in our coding. But absolutely, it, it, I do agree. We need to, the guidelines are so extremely important on their burns. Um, they guide us in so many different ways. They guide us in how to be able to combine our codes. What codes do we code separately for? What if we have multiple different levels of burns in the same area? How are we supposed to code those? Do we code them all or don't we? Um, as well as when do we use those other funny codes that relate to total body surface area? And our guidelines have to tell us that. I, I often think that the rule of nines is, is uh, not taught enough. And I almost kind of look at it as, well, here, I'll tell you what I do. So um, I have this crush on Jason Momoa. I think he's like the most yummiest man out there. Um, and I want to figure out, he's got all these tattoos. How much of his body surface is actually tattooed? So I'll use the rule of nines just to sharpen my thought as I look at, okay, maybe that's just too much for this podcast. Anyway, but <laughs> trying to figure out how much of the skin is affected, either from tattoos or burns or whatever the thing is, I, I use that just as, as a tool for myself, right? To to try to remember those rules of nines, because we do use that in reporting 
the body surface amount that is burned and what's the depth of that burn. So maybe, you know, we have a 9% that's third degree burn and we have 18% that's second degree burn on a patient. And that's really important. Um, the, the deeper the burn, the, the more extensive amount of skin of the burn, you know, the more complex that case is going to be. It's interesting to me as well that of our role of nines, we have a table in CPT. We don't really have anything in I-10. Um, unless I have just not looked at it as intensely no. in recent times. But I see, I see my percents, but I haven't no. seen it. Some publishers do. And, and in the absence of that, I always make a note in my ICD-10 book that says go to page so-and-so in the CPT book to see the rule of nines. And, and in CPT, I actually write the percentage on those nice illustrations that we have to remind me of what, to, you know, the, the top of the chest is nine, the bottom of the chest is nine, each arm is 4.5 on the front and front and the back, so it comes to nine, right? I'll do that and make that connection so that I can easily find that information. That's smart. Um, I've also found that even though I'm really good at math, when I'm under stress, I'm not so good at math. <laughs> and so I like having tables that make me not have to think as deeply when I'm trying to get an answer quickly for someone. Um, and that's a very smart thing. Marking it on there, you're not having to remember and think, oh, this is this much, this is this much. I have right. it there. I might still have to do that little teeny bit of math, um, but it still helps us along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's see. I'm trying to scroll through these guidelines, too, to make sure that we touch on some of the more challenging areas. Um, oh, poisoning, adverse effects, poisonings, underdosing, toxic effects of drugs there. Um, I think that that is also very interesting, but I think we need to understand what each one of those categories are when we're talking about a poisoning where it is unintentional or intentional or assault. What does that mean when someone, and so very interesting. I agree. And also understanding what our default is supposed to be. Yeah. And our default is not always the same all the way throughout those sections. So we need to make sure, again, that we look at the guidelines. And because I don't, you know, I'm in orthopedics. So I, mm -hmm. you know, I do ortho pain, those types of things. We don't deal a lot with the poisonings. We might deal with underdosing, but we don't deal a lot with poisonings. Some adverse effects. So because I don't do it all the time, I need to go back and I need to use, refresh myself on the guidelines. But what we need to understand and we need to remember is that we have to remember there is a guideline there right. and go back and use it. So I don't, you know, I, I, I tell myself, no, I don't have to know intimately what every single guideline says, but I need to be aware that those guidelines exist. So when I'm working with an area that I don't do all the time, I look at those guidelines to make sure that I'm doing the things that they're supposed to be, that I'm supposed to be doing. Absolutely. And, and, um, especially when it comes to the drugs, the guidelines actually have really great examples for us to, to reflect upon, to see 
exactly what category does that fall into? So like you, you spend a lot of time in orthopedics, but someone who um, maybe is in, an, in another role where a patient could possibly, I think rheumatology often deals with a lot of poisonings, um, yes. some of the medications. And then of course, as we get older, I mean, I don't know about you, Ruby, but I'm, I'm just going to be full disclosure. I have to have the little box Sunday through Saturday so that I can tell whether or not I've taken my meds today. It only took one overdosing of taking the medicines twice in one night to make me use that box because I, I couldn't do that. Um, so there's a lot of great examples there to, to explain to us when it's an adverse effect. So they took the medicine appropriately, but you had a, an allergic reaction or um, if it is an, an actual poisoning, if it falls into that poisoning box there, that improper use or the, the abuse, the dependencies that might also come with overdosing. Good point. Um, well, it's also nice to see this year in the guidelines, you know, in the past we were told that we didn't code for underdosing. Um, right. For them to now start recognizing the fact that that underdosing can actually have an effect on the patient and to have changed the guidelines to now allow us to go ahead and bill for the underdosing. Because there's a lot of medications out there that I, I don't know that patients truly understand that you can't discontinue them abruptly, that some of these medications have to be titrated. And when we discontinue them abruptly, patients can experience a lot of adverse effects from discontinuing that medication. Um, so it, that's, um, I love that they added that specific guidance in the new guidelines to remind us that it happens more often than not. Um, mm -hmm. And while providers are focusing on dealing with that adverse effect, we really, again, have to code it out so that it tells the whole story of how we got here. I agree. I actually had that situation um, with my husband. He, they had put him on Decadron um, for an issue and he had major side effects with it. Um, we had some difficulty with communication with the provider and he wanted to just stop at cold turkey. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't convince him. So my, fortunately, my, his brother is a physician and oh. I had to pull him in and get him to talk to him and say, you can't do this. You can't just stop the medication. Um, it, it, you know, it was definitely a, a provider issue. One A and B didn't want to take responsibility for who's supposed to deal with it. Um, but then they met Ruby. <laughs> Isn't that something? I think that happens to a lot of us. Um, I know Betty and, and Sonal and myself and, and, you know, so many others in this industry that we're just programmed to look at things a little differently. Mm -hmm. I, I thank God every day for my primary care doctor. She's absolutely amazing. And, you know, she will ask me during the evaluation and management visit, you know, if, does this qualify? No, it doesn't qualify. Everything is fine with me. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. And, and, and I'm, I love that, but there's other providers out there that, yeah, you know, I had a provider once report a 99215 um, for a, just a regular office visit where nothing had changed, there were, uh, no major conditions. It was, and I thought, how did you get to that? Oh, I deserve that. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> hmm, hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, complications of care. That comes up quite a bit in injuries and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and those external causes that talk to us about complications of care. And there's an entire section outside of uh, chapter 19 that talks to us about complications. But within chapter 19, they do talk about those complications of medical devices specifically and of transplants specifically. So anybody that is working with implantable medical devices, cardiology, or um, any transplant. So nephrology, we see that a lot. Herpetolo mm -hmm. Hepatology, not herpetology, that's the reptiles. Hepatology, pronunciation matters. <laughs> um, just to make sure that you remember there are specific um, guidelines there to assist us when it comes to a complication and, and that the provider doesn't need to say the word complication for it to be a complication. It is, it is due to, and it has changed the course of, then we can see it's a complication. So pretty interesting there. Mm -hmm. Now here's the big question, Ruby. When do we use external cause codes? Well, it depends upon your practice, I would say, but um, you can use the external cause codes aren't just related to injuries. So they're actually able to be used with anything in the I-10 book that might be related to something that caused something else. But vast majority of the time they will be injuries, but mm -hmm. you have a lot of external cause codes that are out there um, related to kind of overuse type problems. Mm -hmm. um, I am a major proponent of the use of external cause codes. Um, and one of the things that it does do is if you do have an injury, the external cause codes can very much um, help to prevent some of the delays that we have from our payers because they see those dreaded S codes and they say, oh, I probably am not responsible for this. Mm -hmm. And so they send off a questionnaire to the patient who never answers it. Um, because they say, well, you know, that's why, for my doctor to take care of. And they don't answer it, so the insurance continues to not pay the provider because they don't know if they're responsible. Versus giving that external cause says, this is what happened, this is the causation of it. Um, I think the external cause codes are very fun, very interesting um, to be able to use. And when we use them, they we need to remember we can never use them by themselves. Sometimes mm -hmm. we want to, but we can't. Um, we always have to have a causation and we can't use all of the different variations that we have. So we have to, we can use the causation anytime the patient is being seen. And we have a seventh character that gets attached to all those causation codes. That's so very similar to our seventh character that we have in chapter 19. But then we get into, well, where did it happen and what were they doing? And, mm -hmm. um, and what activity were they involved in? What place were they? That's the first time and the first time only. Right. Um, and well, I think that we don't always remember that and we kind of want to tend to glide that in as we can. But there is a guideline for that. Ruby, I wanted there to go is. back to what you said earlier about um, how it happened relating to an insurance company sending out that coordination of benefits letter. And mm -hmm. I know that when, when I was working in practice, um, and I also had a billing company, and we did a lot of denials that would come through, and they've requested additional information from the patient. And I used to think, boy, you know what, that's a racket. 
um, they're delaying payment of my claim, but you just made my light bulb go off. Mm-hmm. It probably was related to a diagnosis code that was submitted on a claim that triggered that insurance company to say, there's a good possibility I'm not at fault. There's a possibility that there's an error on the claim that it was auto-related or work-related or even a liability-related um, mm-hmm. because they drank hot coffee from McDonald's. Uh, anyway, I don't know if you remember that way back in the day. I do. I do yeah, remember. The they used to put a sign all the time, the coffee is hot. No joke. I hope it's hot. <laughs> now we have iced coffee. So anyway, um, but I think that's important for people to remember. I, I often say that the insurance payers, they only see what is on the claim. They only see that diagnosis and and that procedure code and then the relationship between them. So oftentimes they have more questions based on that simple amount of information that was provided to them. And you, again, you made my light bulb go off. And uh, now yep. I'm going to look at that completely different. I, I bet that sometimes we might see orthopedics have that denial more often than others. Yes, we do. Um, and we had the same thing. And for a, a few years, I was um, out of orthopedics and working in radiology. And Ooh. it was the same thing. You know, both the radiology groups that I was in, the coders were told we never code external costs and because it doesn't get paid. I'm like, well, it's not a payment code. It is an information code to add to that. And so I slowly got them to understand it. And I was even able to show them we got paid for this. Right. It wasn't six months from now, but we right. actually got paid for it because we told them what happened in the injury. You, you have a patient potential denial. Right. You have a patient with a puncture injury. We've got bite codes in chapter 19. Maybe I want to tell them what that bite came from. Was it a human? Was it a dog? Was it a cat? And particularly from cat bite injuries, because cat bite injuries very commonly end up going to surgery. Because the organisms, that, for some yeah. reason, cats more commonly than dogs. There's an organism that cats have that tends to cause an infection. And so people who have get um, cat bites, particularly on their hands, end up with um, tendon inflammation and an infection in their tendons. Yeah. I'm giving you that information. I'm now also telling you why I'm treating this patient for a longer period of time. But also I've seen it with animal bites. If they are domestic pets, that claim might actually be a liability claim. The homeowner's insurance might oh, be the point. one responsible. Yeah. So those external cause codes are really going to help. You know, it was in their own home or was it in the home of somebody else? And that could tell more of that story with those external cause codes. Yes, very much so. And some of them are just kind of fun. I know. Spontaneous <laughs> like by a chicken. Plucked by a chicken, or <laughs> my favorite is always spontaneously combusting while water skiing. Oh yeah, there is a code. Optum was was showcasing that code for a long time because I think all of us were like, "Is that can that really can that happen?" I don't really know that that can happen. I've water skied before, and I never felt like I would spontaneously combust. Would think it would have to be going awfully fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my my two favorites, one of which they 
they removed. Um, but initially, in, when the coats came out, we had um, sucked into a jet engine um, with an S attached to it and a D. And I'm like, well, maybe. But they also had the decapitation code where and with my decapitation, I had I had a seventh character of D and S attached to it. And I was. Yes, we did. And I believe that decapitation external cause code went away, but there was a D and an S actually attached to it. And I was like, um, I don't see how this is possible. Yeah. And we have enough codes in the book. Please don't give us codes that are just not possible. Correct. Ruby, our but time is done today. Okay. We, I'm having the best time ever. This is one of my favorite episodes, I'll tell you. Um, I, I absolutely love these chapters, especially because you get to really tell a story with the codes that belong in both of these chapters, 19 and 20 there. And... Um, and I always find that to be a little bit of fun, especially the external cause codes. I agree. I, I appreciate you inviting me, Christine. Sure. And I can't wait. We're going to see each other in New York at the Business of Medicine retreat. Those of you that have not signed up yet, there is still time. There is still availability to come to the Business of Medicine retreat. Uh, we have a discount code for you. We look forward to seeing you all there. Come and hang out with Ruby and I. Um, it, it's a very unique experience. If you've never been to a retreat setting, it's not like any of the conferences that you may have gone to in the past. Very much agree. It is a very laid back experience, a very non-threatening experience. So um, many people that go to conferences are very concerned because they're new and they, I don't know anything, um, but you don't get that experience at this retreat at all. Um, no question is ever silly. No question mm -hmm. is ever dumb. Um, and some of those ones that we think are that way actually make us all think of things in a little bit different way. Um, it's a fabulous experience. And it's my birthday weekend. Oh, so. that's even better. Anybody wants to hang out for my birthday. Okay, no pressure, but... All right, guys, thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks. Thanks again, Ruby. Bye, everybody. Thanks for watching. 